I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills, and uh, really good to see all of you. I'm glad that you made the choice to be here and to worship together. Okay, today we're doing something a little different. Uh, we have really, I, I personally enjoy Q&A times. I, it's, it's to me just a blast. I, I just tweeted on this a minute ago. I, I just love the, the, the open-ended, unexpected, unpredictable dimension of it. It's just a blast. And um, the trouble is, you know, I wanted to have 10 minutes at the end of messages to do Q&A, but I get too long-winded. It's just the anointing of the Spirit, I guess. And so uh, I, I never get to the Q&A time, or I don't do it consistently. So we thought we'd just store up the questions and then take a whole service and, and address those. Um, I think some of the best teaching comes out uh, through, through the Q&A kind of stuff, where people are pulling it out of you, uh, rather than just having a, a preset a message that you're going to give, you let the people sort of just pull it out of you. So we're going to do a Q&A session here. Me and my bro, Paul Eddy, come on up, Paul, is going to be part of this. I love this. And um, I encourage you to, uh, you can text in questions here. I know we have a bunch of questions we've been storing up uh, over the weeks, uh, but you can also ask questions from the floor right now. Just dial in this number. Or if you don't have a phone that you can uh, uh, use, um, we have... Uh, pads of paper and pencils up here. There's two tables up under the cross. There's a table behind the camera. There's a table behind uh, the, the sound booth over there. And you can just uh, get a piece of paper and write it out and bring it up to Vanessa. This is Vanessa. Say hi to Vanessa. She's going to be asking the questions here. Bethel Sam student. And, uh, and so she'll be serving it up here. And she'll also be trying to keep us on track because uh, Paul's even longer winded than I am, and, and we can get kind of going on stuff, especially if we're passionate about it. And we're going to try to keep answers as quick, as succinct as possible. And if we get too long winded, she's going to come and kick our butts. So uh, we're very scared. All right, having said that, Lord, just bless this time and let the teaching Amen. flow. Let's do it. Right. Oh, by the way, one more thing. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Hey, you know, we're, the thing is, we got a lot of good questions last night. But we're intentionally not going to repeat those in this service. Um, uh, and so, we, and same will be true in the next service. So, we encourage folks this week to get online, download the sermon, and, and you'll have three different sessions there of, of answering questions. So, there's going to be a lot of questions that are going to get covered this weekend. All right. Do you let's talk do about it. tables and stuff? What? Yeah. You didn't? What? Did you talk about the tables? I talked about the tables. All right. Good. Of course. <laughs> do you think I would miss something, Paul? Forget something? It's possible. Me? It's possible. Me? Are you guys ready? Yes. Sort of. Bring it. <laughs> okay. One more thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Your first question is, do sincere Muslims worship the same God that we Christians do? <laughs> uh, no heckling. What? I said no heckling from the crowd. Oh. Okay. Here, here's a distinction I would make. You have a... a there's three dimensions to uh, really every theological question uh, you can ask. In fact, any question you can ask. The three dimensions are what goes on in your head, number one, what goes on in terms of your relationships, number two, and what goes on metaphysically, number three. What does metaphysically mean? Well, it means out in reality. So, for example, take, take the word God. When I say the word God, I have a picture of God in my head, and you have a picture of your God in your head, and they're probably not identical. Hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, they're pretty close because it should be based on Jesus Christ, but they're going to be a little bit different, right? But we still, now that, that's our, what goes on in our head. But in terms of our relationships, we talk, we, we use the same God language, right? We have the same doctrine. We, we say we believe in God, Jesus revealed in Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then there's the God that we're referring to. Our language refers to God, and our mental pictures refer to God, but they're not identical. So, all that is to say this. Uh, do Muslims worship the same God? There are, I think, probably Muslims who, when they think about God, have a, a picture that's somewhat like the picture that I might have in my head. Uh, but in terms of their, their doctrine, it's certainly not the same God. They believe in a different God in terms of uh, what is revealed to them or what they believe is revealed to them in terms of how they talk about God. But some, I think, have a heart that's open to God and are, have a relationship with the real God, despite the fact that their religion and their doctrine is, I think, blatantly wrong. And so I have a hope that there can be Muslims who are saved. They have a relationship with God, though they don't know that they're saved through Jesus Christ. But in terms of do they explicitly worship the same God, the answer is no. Uh, they call him Allah. We, we, we uh, worship Jesus. And they're very different pictures of God. Amen. That's it. All right. Okay, here's your next question. I've been meeting with Jehovah's Witnesses often who don't believe in the Trinity. And my question, is Jesus God or is he a being other than God and why? This will be hard to keep short. Yeah. <laughs> Especially since you've written a book on this. Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, we didn't talk about dogma, doctrine, opinion. Yet. Oh, I forgot to do that. You I did, did forget, forget something. That. Um, I, I did. Something that, that we have frequently used here at Woodland when we talk about our beliefs is uh, concentric circles. Jesus at the center, that, that everything that we, we say about God or say we know about God, uh, from a Christian perspective, it comes to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our litmus test for everything we know about God. So Jesus at the center of our, of our beliefs always. From there, uh, there's, there's language that, that Christian theology has given us through the centuries. The next sort of uh, center layer we might call dogma, which C.S. Lewis would just call mere Christianity, uh, the basics, the pillars of the faith, things that are, are, have, have been what, what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about God and theology and those things. We call those dogma. Uh, out from there is a, is a circle called doctrine, and usually what doctrines are are simply theories about dogmas. So, for example, you can get most Christians through history to agree that Jesus is the Son of God. But then when you go to, you know, for example, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, Covenant people, Ephraim, all, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Um, or, for example, uh, is baptism important? Yes, they'll all say baptism is important. But then when you ask the question, well, how should we baptize or who should be baptized? Well, then you'll have doctrinal differences about that dogma. And finally, at the outer level, we'll, 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 the, sort of the fourth level, we'll say is just opinions. Uh, things we're not told that much about in Scripture, um, and yet, you know, each Christian might have their, their particular opinion on this issue. So, Jesus, dogma, doctrine, opinion. When it comes to a question like the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, that's a group that doesn't fit in the normal denominational system of Christians for this reason. They deny one of the dogmas of the Christian faith, a claim that Christians have made for 2,000 years, and that is that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And so, to the point of this question, yes, they do deny that. They don't believe in the Trinity because they don't believe that Jesus is fully God. And that has been a teaching from the New Testament onward with regard to historic Christian faith, a dogma of the Christian faith. And that's the reason that, that uh, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, most folks in the Christian circles don't consider them just another denomination because of the, the basic dogma uh, rejection that goes on there. I have some uh, dear uh, Joe Winston ladies that come by almost every Saturday. If I have time, I'll spend, you know, I'll talk with them a little bit. 
But I, I, I'm always trying, they, they always want to bring in and talk about, you know, different things. And I always try to bring it back to this one question because this is everything. Uh, what is your picture of God? Depends on uh, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And unfortunately, Jehovah's Witnesses see Jesus as being this archangel rather than being a manifestation of God himself here on earth. Um, and their translation, quote-unquote translation, uh, which is not a very good translation on this particular doctrine anyways, it distorts these passages that clearly show that Jesus is God. I mean, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and you've got uh, you know, uh, uh, John 20.28, 20, Jesus shows up and, and, and Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're getting exaggerated, you know, you're, you're getting carried away here, I'm just an angel. No, he says, you know, blessed are you. He sees it as a confession of faith. Uh, you've got Romans 9, 5, he's God over all, blessed forever are men. Uh, Titus 2, 13, he's our great God and Savior. Uh, and so there's just a ton of passages that show that Jesus Christ is, in fact, uh, God himself uh, here on earth. And it's, I think, very unfortunate that they, they're wonderful people, I think they're very sincere but on this thing, they just got it wrong, and it screws up. It's the center of the center. If you're going to get anything wrong, don't get that one wrong. <laughs> this holds together everything. Okay. Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit real, and is it distinct from salvation? Oh, a good question. I, I think the baptism, yeah, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, is real. Um, uh, as, as, and I don't see the synonymous with, with just believing. We talked about this several months ago in a message. Um, where the, the Bible makes this distinction, uh, you see it th throughout the book of Acts, uh, between believing, which you have the Holy Spirit, you can't believe without the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has to empower you to have faith, no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So by believing, you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit, but that's not to say you're filled with the Spirit. Um, and so, for example, in, in Acts 8, these, these uh, Samaritans believed in Jesus, but they, they hadn't yet received the fullness of the Spirit, so the apostles come up and pray for them that they would receive the fullness. Um, and the disciples, they believed in Jesus in, in Acts chapter 2, but Jesus said, wait in, in, in Jerusalem till you receive the power from on high. And, um, and so I, I think there is a distinct thing uh, about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 6 the apostles say, find us seven people who are, who are filled with the Holy Spirit to help us in, in this ministry. And that presupposes that not everyone was full of the Spirit. Uh, it was a distinct thing, and they were to look for people who are filled with the Spirit. Now, where people disagree uh, uh, is on this. Some groups, the Pentecostals, will, will, will teach that, that if you're filled with the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. That's the evidence that you're filled with the Spirit. And we here at Willing Hills Church just don't see that. Uh, that is one manifestation of the, the Spirit. But to be full of the Spirit, I think it's almost synonymous with like being f full of God, filled with God. You, you ooze with God. There's not one particular criteria that sets you apart as being filled with the Spirit. Uh, you just have the Spirit of Jesus radiating uh, out, out of you. And so we don't limit it to speaking in tongues. Okay. Woodland Hills will be serving food and housing people in the near future. So how does this church refrain from or not become the power over those people who are seeking our help? Hey, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, it is true that anytime someone is in a position of um, having resources that others don't have and, and offering those resources, there is the potential that that relationship can become one of, uh, of, a, of a power over dynamic. In fact, sometimes that type of power over dynamic is the most insidious because it looks like you're coming under when, in fact, the motive of your heart could be 
to really have control, to look righteous, to do a lot of those things. I think this type of thing, it really comes down to a matter of the heart. Uh, as G- Jesus so frequently brings issues about relationships and power dynamics back to the issue of the heart. Not what does it look like from the outside. From the outside, it could look wonderful of a, of a big church that is helping folks uh, with resource needs and that. But the question is, what is our motive? What, what, why are we doing that? Is it to, to, to come under by uh, exampling, uh, to follow the example of Jesus who himself, as Paul says, emptied himself in order to become a bondservant and serve others? Or are we trying to, you know, get our name in the paper or look good or feel a little closer to God? I think it's a hard issue in the end. There's a great book on this called When Helping Hurts. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really does a good job of just showing how in the Western church in particular, especially in the white Western church, there's been this long tradition of uh, doing a lot of damage, thinking you're doing a lot of good. Because there's been kind of an arrogant spirit. We will save you. We're coming here. We are the people of resources. We'll help you. Um, and in this book, it advocates, I think, what Paul just said, a real biblical model of, of uh, uh, maintaining a humble stance, realizing, in fact, going to the person realizing that they are the face of Jesus and coming under them and not just being a one-way relationship but a, a, a reciprocal relationship where we go to learn. It's not just that we have the answers and the food. and No, we, we should come with a, with a mindset of Jesus will minister to us through them. And, and so you have a, a learning, a, a humble ad, a attitude. Amen. Someone said that there were people before Adam and Eve. Is that true? Historical Adam? Yeah, it's interesting. This is, I'm actually right now, um, this week, deciding if, if uh, a book project a friend and I, and I have been planning for a year is going to go through or not on this topic of uh, was there an historical Adam? Um, we just found out that two other publishing houses are trying to do the same book, and I think we're we're behind the curve. That's not good. Oh no! But uh, this is a major issue. Just within the last couple of years, uh, several professors at different evangelical teaching institutions have lost their job over how they answer this question. Be Someone like careful, Greg Paul. answer this question. <laughs> careful. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're serious. <laughs> I was I'll let you know if you're right. All right. <laughs> I make this distinction. Uh, you have the biblical record, you have the biblical record, and then you have theories about how the biblical record relates to history. All right? Uh, and those are two distinct things. From a biblical record, there's no one before Adam and Eve. There they are. And so in terms of the, the message uh, that we preach and the things we stand for and, and the lessons we draw from the scripture, Adam and Eve are the first. There, there you go. Uh, and Paul draws a parallel between Adam and Jesus and all of that. Now... When you ask the question, how does that relate to history, how does it relate to evolution, and all that sort of thing, there's a multitude of different theories on that. Um, and um, uh, our stance is that, at the church here, that we don't, uh, that is out there in the opinion realm. Uh, and, and so it's not something that we need to have a, a uniform agreement on. I think it's good to discuss, good to debate. I've got my own convictions uh, about it, and I'm sure they're absolutely right. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's good to be, you know, debating these sorts of things, because there are a multitude of ways of putting together the biblical narrative with the theory of evolution and things like that. Um, everything ranging from the young earth creationist to, you know, all sorts of other different views. Um, and so on that, we want to keep a lot of flexibility. But in terms of the biblical narrative, uh, when it comes to preaching and teaching, whatever, we stick just to that. We're not going to preach our theory about it. We're just going to preach what the Bible says about it. Want to add anything? I endorse that answer. <laughs> I'm Paul Eddy, and I endorse that answer. 
Does the prosperity gospel have any merit? Have a what? Any merit. merit. Any merit. Merit. I think it does, um, but one has to be very careful. Um, I, have a, I have a good friend who um, was very damaged by this particular teaching. Uh, and uh, So a real quick snapshot of what the prosperity gospel is. It's the, it's the teaching that because of what Jesus has done in the atonement, that uh, anyone who believes in Christ is guaranteed, in essence, if they simply have enough faith and don't have uh, un- unrepentant or unconfessed sin in their lives, they should always be healthy, never should suffer any, any sickness, always should um, have a, a healthy uh, bank account, uh, prosperity, and that if you don't, that's a reflection, not of God, because God's promised you that, so if you're not receiving that, it's a, it's a lack in either faith in, in his promises or um, broken relationship with him because of some ongoing sin. Um, what I love about folks who, who, who come out of that stream is they, they really, really uh, move in faith. And faith is a good thing. But the question always is, what are you having faith in? What are the promises that you are having faith in about what God has, has said to us? And as far as I read the New Testament, I don't see any place that Jesus unequivocally promises his followers absolute perfect health and absolute uh, upper-middle-class American financial prosperity uh, for the rest of their lives. Um, so I think what's happened here is that the, the teaching of, of, of a strong uh, call to faith has been mixed with certain values of our last 21st, 20th, 21st century American culture and kind of wrapped all together and mixed up. Um, in fact, Jesus um, tells us at one point in John, here's what I promise you, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have trials, mm. but fear not, for I have overcome the world. Amen. doesn't mean that, that everything will always be the way I want it to be or that my bank account will always look like upper-middle-class America, but it does mean that I'm called to have faith in God regardless of my situation so that I can say with Apostle Paul, whether I find myself in plenty, whether I find myself in financial want, I, I find myself content because of, of what God's life is in me. I think there's a good principle that they land on, and it has to do with being transformed by the renewing of your mind, about speaking the truth and thinking the truth and you know, acting on the truth. I think it's a real positive and true thing. But as Paul said, unfortunately, they apply it to an area that I don't think should be applied to. I think you should talk about and speak your identity in Christ and think your identity in Christ and affirm it, even if it conflicts with your experience. Affirm your identity in Christ. Live in that. Uh, but there's just no basis for applying it to uh, are, are being always healthy and always wealthy and all other kind of American dream stuff. Yeah. I feel like I'm drowning. I pray to God and I feel no response. What should I do? Mm. Feel no response. Yes, yeah. feel no response. Well, Lord bless you. Um, you know, I, I would encourage you to, in some ways, do what I just said, uh, where uh, one of the most fundamental decisions you make is what's going to be your authority to tell you what is true. And I always encourage people to not make your feelings your authority for what is true. The enemy can use that. So you feel like you're drowning. You feel like God's absent. We go through these times that are the dark night of the soul is what they've been called throughout the church tradition. And I've been there and I feel for you. It's not a pleasant place to be. Uh, Whatever else happens, lock it in that that, that God loves you and that God is there and his arms are around you and, and affirm that and believe that regardless of what you feel. And then I would encourage you to, uh, most of our feelings are associated with what, 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 what's going on in our minds and our imaginations, what we envision. Uh, the feelings 
are, are really the, the, the feeling component of our, our, the pictures in our mind. And so it may be that you are, even though you believe one way, you're in, envisioning things a different way. And so I encourage you to spend time just envisioning God holding you. Uh, envisioning Jesus just coming to you and talking to you and, and loving you as concretely as possible. There's a whole church tradition on this called cataphatic spirituality. But whether you feel it or not, just know that it's true that he's there and he's holding you and he's close to you. And then try to envision that and affirm that because, because that's what's real. You're just trying to get your mind to line up with reality. And uh, you might find that in time, uh, the feeling of being in God's presence begins to return to you. Greg's too humble to say this, but his book, Seeing is Believing. I am too humble. I just really am too humble. It's, what am I, it's actually really helpful on this. I never hear any teaching from Revelation or about the end times here at Woodland Hills. Why is that? Yeah, what's up with Paul's that? Paul's fault. <laughs> you know, there's, um, when I became a Christian, within about two weeks, I decided that um, the place I should start my my Bible study was in the book of Revelation. Bad idea. And I still, to this day, have my, my original study Bible from, from back, it was, I was in uh, college, and I have seven pages of notes uh, on what it all meant. It's all wrong, but I still have it 30 years later, just to remind myself, it's all wrong, at least what I thought back in the 1980s, and um, I was convinced Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist back then. But... That aside, um, Revelation is an amazing book. It's just that we frequently don't use it for the purpose the author intended it. And that is to encourage Christians who are in a very difficult setting uh, to continue to be countercultural, to be kingdom people. And instead, um, because of sort of our, our, our hunger to know all of the fine points of the final days, we, we, we try to get in and dissect uh, a lot of very complex symbolism. Th- this book is a piece of literature known as apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a genre from the ancient world that we're just not familiar with today. We don't write an apocalypse genre today. Um, but the book of Daniel, last half, and the book of Revelation, a good part of it, are this genre. And in order to get into that, you just need to take a moment and do a little bit of, of maybe reading on how to interpret uh, ancient Jewish apocalyptic. Uh, great book on this uh, for anything uh, in terms of Bible uh, interpretation is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by uh, Gordon Fee and Doug Stewart. Greg and I use it in our spiritual warfare class at Bethel. And it has an entire chapter on how to read apocalyptic. And um, so it's not that we want to shy away from Revelation. It's just that the way it tends to get used in most churches today, we don't think is uh, an appropriate approach to, to that book. I've actually really, really gotten jazzed about the book of Revelation in the last couple of years after having fried on it because I had the same kind of experience Paul did in my early Christian life where, you know, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I kind of gave up on the book for a number of years. I just couldn't relate to it. But then through uh, just various means, uh, it's, it's, it's come alive to me again. I've actually thought about maybe having a... It's the kind of thing where... The book of Revelation in evangelical circles is so misread so frequently today, where it's read as sort of a snapshot of what's going to take place in the last several years of world history, that, that you, you need to do a, a teaching in a seminar form or something to get a, a kind of a panoramic view of the thing. And you can't just do it, you know, sound, bite, sound bites on it. Um, but uh, I, I, a real good resource, the thing that really made it start to come alive for me again was this uh, tape series or CD series by Malcolm Smith in a ministry called Unconditional Love. And he did his whole teaching on the book of Revelation. And it was just beautiful. It made it come alive for me uh, again. 
Um, whereas most people today, not most people, but a lot of evangelicals, read the book of Revelation as though it was all about the last several years of world history. Uh, the, the apocalyptic literature was about the now. It's about calling people to a changed life now. and It's about uh, spiritual realities that are going on now. It has reference to the future, but it's primarily about the present and engaging the present. And um, that's what that, that series did for me. And at some point, we, we, it would be good to have a, yeah. a seminar or something like that here uh, on that marvelous, marvelous book. Yeah. Yeah. We have actually a couple questions about communion. And they're all asking, why don't we celebrate communion at Woodland Hills? <laughs> um, communion, we believe, at Woodland Hills, uh, that Jesus was pretty clear. As he held uh, the cup and, and the bread up at the Last Supper and said, um, this is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, remembrance language is, is tied to covenant relationship. What we believe he was saying is, this is the sign of the new covenant. And signs of covenants are absolutely important. Um, so we absolutely believe in, 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 uh, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper or communion. The problem is, and Jesus showed us this at the Last Supper, he was doing it in a, a group of about you know, 12 or a few more people that were celebrating that, that, uh, that Lord's Supper with him. It is not best done in an auditorium of, of a thousand people where you have a, a little wafer and a cup and you're staring at someone the back of someone's head. It, it's, it's communion, which means community, which means celebrating the oneness of being part of the body of Christ with our head, Jesus Christ. So although we absolutely believe in it, we encourage it to be done in small contexts, in, in, in house churches and small groups. But we realize that not everyone here at Woodham is in a house church, a small group. And so we do uh, quarterly or as frequently as we... As, Three or four times a year. How many, how many, three, three or four, or four times, times a year. Yeah. We do it in, in the large auditorium so that people at least have that experience. It's just that the, the point of it really is to be done in community in smaller contexts. I think if you look, if you look at it, you know, Jesus, whenever you drink this cup and eat this bread, we focus on you know, the literal cup and the bread, but I think it's talking about the whole meal. I mean, yeah. whenever you eat and drink together, do it in remembrance of me. And so it's a, it's a fellowship kind of thing. It's a shared meal. And as we get our natural food, uh, as we're taking that in, we want to be remembering our spiritual food, the one we're connected to, and, and always having him on, on, on our mind, remembering what he did for us, the, the death he died, the blood, the blood he shed, the body that was broken. And so, again, it's, uh, it's most appropriately done in a small group context, though we want to do it a few times here uh, to get everyone involved in it. Please explain the meaning of honoring thy father and mother. My family has given up on me, meaning no support, no love, because of my son's autism, and the pain is too much. Oh, and that's, that's hard. Uh, yeah, I, I feel for whoever wrote this question. Lord, just bless that person and give them wisdom and encouragement. Yes. Um, honoring your father and mother... It just means that the term there means to, to, to uh, recognize their worth, to ascribe to them the, the worth that they have. And not just in the way that we do with everybody. Everyone has unconditional worth because Jesus died for them. But in the role of, of mother and father. And so it's to acknowledge that. Uh, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to be submitted to uh, their, their authority all of your life. Or you're supposed to do what they say. Or they should always be telling you how to raise your kids or, or anything like that. Uh, if they've got wisdom to give on that, wonderful. If they don't, then, then that is what it is. But it, it just basically means to give them the respect that is their due. In, in the situation of this person, 
Um, I, I don't know why they, I mean, it's just, it's very sad that they have not, uh, that they, uh, for, for painful reasons, have, have given up on you. Uh, as a follower of Jesus, I would just encourage you to keep praying for them and loving them and tre- reaching out for them. Um, uh, not being indicted by the fact that they're not involved in, in your life, uh, but always being trying to uh, get them involved. And maybe at some time, at some point, their heart may change, and um, uh, they'll they'll become more a part of uh, your the life of your you and your child. Uh, but just keep praying for them. I love what I've been hearing lately about God being so loving, but I'm still unclear about what to do when the Bible talks so much about God's wrath and fearing God. Are you saying that there's no wrath in God? Should I not fear Him? Good. Writing a book about Excellent this, question. Huh? I, I am. You go ahead. I endorse your book. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> He's my number one fan. I love this guy. I love this guy. Uh, you know, yeah, two things here I, I would say. One is that uh, the concept of wrath, we often think of it in terms of an emotion, a fiery emotion. In fact, uh, in, in a human connotation, it has almost the idea of a rage out of control. Wrath, you know. Uh, I would argue, and I'm arguing in this book, that the, the, the biblical concept of wrath, especially as it's flushed out in the New Testament, is basically synonymous with God's ordained consequences for sin. In fact, I just found uh, Friday, when Paul and I, we spend our Fridays in the basement, we're such geek heads, we spend the, our, our Fridays all day long in the basement of Bethel Seminary uh, Library doing research for this book and stuff, and um, we just get all geeked out. It's, it's to us, uh, ecstasy. So uh, Books, books, books. <laughs> But I came across, I, 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 we were, I was doing some research on Luther, and this was his view. That, that wrath is the, the God-ordained consequences of sin. It's, it's what happens when you are resisting his love, you experience it as his wrath. And so there is definitely a place for talking about the wrath of God and for warning people about the wrath of God. Uh, but it's not in a way where God's just you know, uh, ticked off and almost out of control raging towards you. Uh, he's... He, he, God's revealed on the cross, and his arms are towards you, and he's pleading with you to come to him so you don't experience the consequences of, of, of what it's to reject God. To reject God is to reject the source of life, and that is death. It's by definition, death. That's the wrath of God. Uh, but it's not a, a personal emotion that he has towards you. Now, about this fear thing, um, you know, John says that perfect love casts out fear. There's a, always a place for reverence, uh, uh, reverencing God, the awesome God, and respecting the infinitude of God, and, and just... Always having that, never losing that. You don't want to just become buddy-buddy with God. He's certainly our friend, but, but, but he's, he's also God, and, and, and so there's got to be this reverence there. But I believe that the more you grow in Christ and, and, and develop a relationship with Christ and are defined by Christ, the more that happens, the more it drives out fear. And that's exactly what John says. Perfect love drives out fear. And when we're in Christ, we shouldn't be being afraid of God. No, God now is our lover and our friend, our, 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 our bridegroom. Which is really just to say that, that uh, as, as Greg frequently reminds us, um, what is our picture of God? What really is going on in our synapses when we hear or think or pray to God? And, and so frequently, this, uh, we'll find if we actually are investigating what does go on in our heads that we have schizophrenic pictures of God. Sometimes we got this loving picture, but all it takes is us doing a sin or something uh, convicting us, and all of a sudden we get this wrathful picture of God. But the question always is, with remember, Jesus at the center. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it's not representing the true God. And we know that our enemy, Satan, spends his entire existence trying to produce masks of God and confusing us as to who God is. 
because he wants to be uh, seen as God. And so we have a lot of masks of Satan that come off in our culture as pictures of God. And then we have Jesus Christ as the litmus test by which we, we have to judge what's going on in our brain. Um, does Jesus get angry sometimes? Yes, he does. But notice why he gets angry. He's always, the only time he gets angry is when, when broken relationship is destroying people. He's always about repairing, restoring, healing, bringing back. And so even God's wrath is in service to his redemption and the healing and the, and the restoration of, of love relationship. You know, when I, when I was answering the question, I said there's two things. I only gave one. <laughs> it just occurred to me, there's the second thing I didn't say. And that is this, is that uh, it's always important, in line with, with, with what Paul just said, that we interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. In fact, he himself encourages us to do that. He says his testimony is weightier than John, and all scripture bears witness to him, and things of that sort. And, and so we're to realize that in the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ, I mean, we're getting revealed the mystery that was kept hidden for ages. And so we know a great deal more in, in, in Christ than they knew in the Old Testament. And we have to take that into consideration when we're coming upon some of the pictures of God's wrath in the Old Testament. We've got a fuller revelation and a fuller understanding of what that is about than they had. And so always stick with Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Paul at one point says, I, I know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, I think it's a great principle of, of, of in our thinking theologically to always begin and end by asking you know looking at christ to say how does he answer this question how, how what do we find revealed about the wrath of god in christ especially christ crucified and on the cross we see there that jesus experienced divine abandonment he in that sense experienced god's wrath but it was divine abandonment my my, my, my god my, my god why have you forsaken me he says um, and so there, there, that itself tells us that, that the wrath of God is, is a relinquishing over to experiencing the consequences of sin. That's what happens in Jesus. It experiences the consequences that we deserve and thereby frees us from those consequences. Why are there some books missing from the Bible and what significance, if any, do they have to Jesus and his message? There you go, Paul. There could be... Two types of, of those books. Um, uh, we know that, uh, for example, there was a number of books written between the Testaments during the intertestamental period, written by Jews that um, were considered very helpful books and important books. They just didn't end up in the Old Testament canon, uh, the collected books of the Old Testament. So there's some Jewish books that are referred to. In fact, uh, a couple of books in our New Testament refer to a couple of those Old Testament books. They're just not in the Old Testament. On the other hand, there's also some books written by early Christians that didn't uh, make it into, into the, the what we call the 27-book canon of the New Testament. Um, some are Gospels, like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Mary, these sorts of things. Others are just... Uh, helpful early Christian texts like the Didache or Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, I think maybe one, one simple way of, of kind of explaining this is that uh, just like today, Christians write a lot of good books. Some good, some maybe not so good. Mine are all good. Greg's are fine, I guess. Um, <laughs> and I'm modest. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they're inspired by God. And so what the early church had to do, part of its spirit-led uh, activity in the first centuries was to determine, or really, really to recognize which books God had, had spe specifically inspired and which were just good Christian books. 
And we believe, that early, or the church has always believed, that, that the Holy Spirit not only inspired certain books, but also inspired the early church to recognize which of those books were inspired and to collect those as our 66-book uh, Bible, uh, 39 Old Testament, 27 New. And um, there were some tests that they gave for that. For example, was this book, these are New Testament tests, was the book um, written by an apostle or a direct uh, relationship of the apostle? Secondly, is this book recognized by churches all over the Mediterranean world, which at that time was the entire church, as inspired text? Third, um, is there anything in this text that doesn't fit with uh, good theology that the, that the churches in the Mediterranean world were all holding at that time? So that it wasn't just uh, sort of a, a willy-nilly decision. It wasn't something that some emperor decided, which I've heard some books say. The Con- Constantine decided it was in the Bible. No, he didn't. Uh, what, the, what those councils were doing was recognizing what the church had already for centuries been doing uh, in terms of their, their recognizing these texts that uh, were coming out from the first century. Good. Why was Satan given the authority to accuse us or demand our punishment for sin? Oh, right. Uh, good question. Very good question. You've written a book on that. <laughs> Stop saying that! <laughs> Do you endorse it? Uh, yeah, Satan and the problem of evil. Um, here's the thing. is that I, I, God didn't give Satan the authority uh, with the intent of him using it to accuse us. God just gave Satan authority. Uh, every agent that... Uh, I, I, would, I argue that, that human beings as well as angels have free will. God gave us free will because he wants a love relationship with us. And that free will is our say-so. Our say-so to affect what comes to the past. That's our responsibility. It's also our, our, our authority. It's our little kingdom, right? I, I have an influence on, on a certain uh, amount of people to a certain degree. Um, and that's my say-so. And I, but I have the free will to use it in line with God's say-so or against it. In fact, and God's goal is for us to bring our kingdom under his kingdom so that our, our kingdom, our say-so, is now the dome over which he reigns. But now we're, now we're kingdom ambassadors. Uh, we're working for the kingdom. So every agent is given a domain of say-so, some more, some less. Uh, certain angels are given a great deal of authority. Um, uh, and it seems, like, it seems, so far as we can tell, that Satan was given the most authority. And he could have used that to have been spectacular. He could have been, you know, just the, the greatest of all God's created beings in terms of using his power to in line with God's purposes and, and all of that. Um, but uh, the bigger they are, they are, the harder they fall. Uh, the, the, it says, as high you could have soared, it says about Satan or Lucifer, as high you could have soared, so low he fell. And so when a person or a being of magnificent authority goes bad, now all of that authority gets used for, for evil. And, um, well, we, and we see this in our own lives all the time. I mean, a, a mother who decides to start smoking crack uh, while she's pregnant is, is going to harm her baby, but she's still the, the mother. She still has that authority. She just is now using it at cross purposes with God, and that damages other folks. But she had to have that power to do that if she was going to have the power to love. You can't have one without the other. And so we always can ask, why would God give Satan so much authority to damage the creation the way he is and to accuse us and other things like that? But see, if he didn't have the potential to go that bad, he wouldn't have had the potential to go that good. And the same is true of our own lives. 
Um, and so now Satan has rebelled and brought many of the angels with him, and they're using their power uh, for destructive purposes, working at cross purposes with God. It won't always be like that. It's a finite amount of power. It will run out. But in the meantime, God and us have to work around that, and uh, God, we trust God is smart enough and, and is not giving away so much to say so he can't stay sovereign over the whole creation, so he will win in the end. But in the meantime, uh, we have to endure through this and put up with it, uh, keeping our eyes fixed on the return of Jesus when it's all going to be made right. So there are a ton more questions, and they're all really good, but it is almost time for us to close, so I'm going to ask one more question. You guys are going to have to look at the other, the, the whole block, because some of these questions will get maybe put, put to the yeah. next episode, so watch all three episodes. <laughs> We're doing episodes, Paul. <laughs> okay, comedy so series. our last question is why is art important in the church? And why is art important specifically at Woodland Hills? You mentioned a book last night um, on another question about heaven. Uh, by a book, out, a pretty recent book out by N.T. Wright called uh, Surprised by Hope. It's a wonderful book about the resurrection and the role of the resurrection in the Christian life, but it's also a book about, uh, about heaven and about what God is doing to to renew the earth. And in this book, I just was reading this part uh, this week, um, N.T. Wright says that, that art and, and the, the, the artistic creative nature of, of human beings that God kind of wired into us, uh, he believes is, is sort of an echo of, of what's going to be forever in heaven, this, uh, this creative artistic expression um, of, of who God is and, and uh, what's true about love and the creation. And that's, that's part of, of uh, uh, wired into us in order to express the beauty and creativity of God. So I think it holds an amazing place in the church. I think, you know, with N.T. Wright, he says that Christians should be at the forefront of artistic expression and creativity and culture. Yes. Um, using it as a mode by which to capture people's hearts and imaginations for the kingdom of God. So I think mm -hmm. it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, important place and role. Now, it's a place at Woodland Hills. Maybe you want to well, talk about that. The, uh, the thing about art, I mean, the imagination, Paul just mentioned the imagination. It is, we, we've always taught around here, the, uh, the, the centerpiece of our, our, our spirituality. It's, it's the, the main place where God meets us. And um, uh, that we're wired so that things come alive to us the more concrete they are. And one of the things that art does is I mean, words can express the, the kingdom and can express truth and things like that, but art, good art, when it's used for godly purposes, can capture our imagination and can be used to really help uh, get the message in in deeper ways and to internalize uh, kingdom principles and to be transformed and to glorify God in different ways. And so it really does, as Paul just said, uh, belong to God. thing is, that, like free will, like free will, everything in creation, it, uh, the power it has to do good is also the power that can be used for evil. Yeah. It's true of our free will. It's true of music. It's true of art. It's true of everything. And so it's not surprising that we find art, all forms of art, being used sometimes for very gross, ungodly purposes. And then some Christians throughout the in church tradition have, as they've always done, throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, we've got to stay away from the whole thing. And our, our conviction is that, no, that belongs to God and we want it back. And so we, we really are encouraging taking everything back that belongs to God and using it for the purpose for which God uh, created us and uh, endowed us with that power, uh, and that is to glorify him. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Paul and Vanessa, for being a part of that. You did a wonderful job, Vanessa. Hats off to you. She's a gift. She's a gift.
Thanks for those great questions. Uh, we, we just can't get to as many as we'd like, but I, I love doing this. It's just you never know what's going to happen. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm going to uh, close with a word of prayer that uh, the Holy Spirit takes us and applies it to our life in any way we need. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever, uh, whether it's financial or spiritual or relational, whatever, I encourage you to come and, uh, and, and uh, get prayer with these folks. Especially, my heart is still bleeding for that person who's... Uh, parents rejected them with their kid. Oh, my heart's going out to you. Come up and get some prayer for that. Abba, Father, uh, we uh, just want to thank you for being our Father. And for any who are here or hearing this message through podcasts who are not yet your children, we pray, God, that you'd bring them to the point where they would submit their lives to you and turn from their old life and turn to uh, a kingdom life. And God, as we leave this place, we pray you, Holy Spirit, would, would uh, uh, seal into our hearts what needs to be sealed, to uh, remember what we need to remember, and to change us in any way we need to be changed. As we now leave here, God, to do your will, to manifest your love and character to every person we meet, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, and God bless you guys. Go out, build a kingdom.